Well, good morning, and welcome back to church. As a corporate body of believers, we get to gather and have the privilege on this Pentecost Sunday. Now, Pentecost is a celebration. It's actually a festival that has been observed for thousands of years by God's people, starting first with the Jewish people and now being inherited by us Gentiles and those who have been grafted into the vine. As you just saw there in Acts chapter 2, we find that Pentecost was the birthday of the early church. It was when the sign was given that Jesus had ascended and arrived at the Father. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is making intercession for me and for you. I don't know about you, but that gets me excited to know that Jesus is praying for me. And Jesus is praying for you. And not only that, but he has given to us the helper, his precious Holy Spirit, to walk with us, to guide us, to be in us, and us to be in him. And this morning, I want to share with you three things about Pentecost. First, I want to share the promise of Pentecost, then the power of Pentecost, and lastly, the purpose of Pentecost. Before we get to Acts chapter 2, I think that we need to look at the promise, which is found in Luke chapter 24. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he is telling them something that is going to happen. He was, he was telegraphing for them, if you will, some events that were yet to unfold. Many things troubled their hearts. Many things were on their minds. And he was telling them that there is coming a time, there is coming a day when something is going to so drastically change that you are not even going to look the same. You're not going to think the same. You're not going to walk the same. Everything about your world and your life is about to change. In Luke 24 and 49, it says this, Behold, I send the promise. Everybody say the promise of my father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power. Somebody say power. So there's promise, there's power. We're going to be endued with power from on high. He's referring to the heavenly realm. Now, you can have Passover, which we celebrated 50 days ago. You can have Passover without Pentecost, but you cannot have Pentecost without Passover. It occurred to me as I was preparing this morning that the last time that we gathered that I was able to speak to you like this, that I was able to open the Word of God and publicly declare God's Word in a corporate setting with you uh, together on this campus was at Easter. Easter is Passover. Jesus became our Passover lamb, that perfect sacrifice. And so at Passover, we gathered, but you were still in your cars. You were out there in the, in the parking lot, and I was on a flatbed trailer. And after Pastor Nate uh, serenaded us with songs of worship and songs of praising our Father, we were able to celebrate our Passover Jesus. But 50 days later, now today, we find ourselves, seven weeks having passed, we are here at Pentecost, and we are at a time of jubilation. It is a time of celebration. And I think that as, as all these events have unfolded to bring us to this day, to get us right here to this moment, it is something I believe that was a setup by God. It was intended for us to gain a perspective, for God to get our attention and see that there is a celebration in Pentecost that could have never taken place unless first we had that Passover lamb. The Passover was where the blood was shed and where the blood is applied. And so when you've come through the cross, when you've come through the blood, when you've said yes to the sacrifice of Jesus on your life, then he is speaking this promise to you. 
Even though it was spoken thousands of years ago, this is the promise. He said, go and tarry in the city of Jerusalem. They didn't realize how long it was going to be. They didn't know how much time was going to pass, but they realized that this promise was sure and this promise was be fulfilled. Jesus was with them the first 40 days and then he left. And so 10 days they found themselves tarrying or waiting in the city of Jerusalem in an upper Room And in an old-time church, they used to say that we would tarry in the altar, or we would, we would hold on to the horns of the altar. Anybody know what it means to tarry in the Lord? That means you got to wait a while. That means everything that happens doesn't happen immediately, that it doesn't just turn around tomorrow. It's not a 24-hour cycle that when we pray, then magically our prayers get answered. No, there is some tarrying. There is some waiting. There is some wondering that happens in our faith life. And Jesus was with his disciples after the resurrection for 40 days, teaching them all of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And then somehow he wasn't around anymore. Something was was very different now because they had 10 days to wait. They didn't know how long, but they were going to this upper room. We know that 120 went to the upper room. Now, here's the thing to understand. There were not 120 invited to the upper room. There were way more than 120 invited, but only 120 accepted that invitation. Only 120 said, yes, I'll go and I'll obey the words of Jesus. And I I don't know, but I believe that there are many, many people around the world today who have been invited, the the whosoever wills, the, the net has been cast, but there are just a few, there are 120 in this case, and sometimes even less in other cases that actually take him up on the invitation. So the question is this, do you want this promise? Do you want what God has for you? I don't know, I want everything that God has for me. I want to accept this promise. Acts 1 and 4 said, and being assembled together, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. John truly baptized with water, but you, that's you and me, but we shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So the promise of Pentecost is the bestowal of the Holy Spirit upon the early church. Not only to be uh, in us, but to sit upon and rest on us. When someone is in a seated position, they're in a rested state. Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father is resting as he's ruling and reigning over the spiritual dimension. And when the the day of Pentecost fully came, we're going to get into it in a minute, there was sitting upon each and every one of them cloven or divided tongues as a fire. And so that is the place of authority. So the Spirit being sent at Pentecost was sent to be not only in you. Jesus previously told his disciples in Luke 24, he, he breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit became in them. At Passover, we get the Spirit in us. We say yes to the sacrifice of Jesus. The Spirit of God comes in us. Spirit and salvation are one and the same. It happens at salvation. Somebody say, well, uh, I don't know if I've got the Holy Ghost. I don't know if I've got the Spirit of God living in me. I say, did you accept Jesus? They say, yes. Well, you have the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit cannot be separated from regeneration. 
at salvation, we receive the Holy Spirit to reside on the inside us. It is that beginning of new creation. It starts to change us from the inside out. That's why that you take a person who's been uh, living a riotous life all of their life, and they accept Jesus, and the next day, their visage looks a little bit different, their, their face looks a little bit different, but they probably wear the same clothes. They probably go to the same places. They probably do many of the same things, but you give them a couple of more days, you give them a week, you give them a couple of months, and all of a sudden, they start changing the outside because on the inside, there's already activated a change. It's not about someone having to come and tell them how to talk right, how to walk right, how to dress right, the right places to go. But on the inside, there's something that speaks up to them and says, you know what? I don't think I desire going to the bar anymore. You know what? I don't think I desire to dress like that anymore. You know what? I don't think that I desire to run with that crowd anymore. And on the inside, this activated change starts to take effect on the outside. And that's the spirit getting in us. But Jesus said that John indeed baptized with water. Water baptism is very important. It's very vital. I point back here because we have a baptism pool that the very last Sunday uh, that we were together, we announced we're going to do a baptism next Sunday. We had the water already. It was even heated in the pool. It was perfectly set. Everything was good. I waited all the way till Saturday night, and I came here because the baptism was ready. We had about seven or eight people, I think, already signed up to be baptized. And finally, on Saturday night, I had to pull the plug and say, we're not having church. We're not having church on Sunday. Coronavirus has knocked us out of being able to have our baptism service. John indeed baptized with water. Baptism with water is a a sign of a new creation. It's a sign of identifying with the body of Christ. It's saying that I want to be numbered in that role. I want to be part of that family. I was so disappointed and so discouraged that we couldn't have baptism I even had a wonderful baptism testimony to share with you that I'm going to share with you the next time we have baptism. We're going to reschedule it. We're not going to be knocked off that easy. Amen? We're going to reschedule it. But John indeed baptized with water. Now, when when someone's baptized with water, you've seen how we do it around here, and there's all kinds of ways to do it, whether you sprinkle or immerse or however you do it. I don't really care. There's all kinds of ways to do it. But we, we baptize by immersion. I believe that's the way that John the Baptist, when they went down into the river Jordan, and he would, he would baptize them. They would go under. Baptism is the sign of dipping. What it means is that you, you dip something. You, you take, um, many times they would call fabric being baptized, is that they would take a piece of fabric and they would baptize it or dip it in dye. And when the fabric came out of the dye, it changed its appearance because it took on the characteristics of the dye. And so when you and I are dipped in water, when we are baptized, when we are immersed in water, we come out as a new creation in Jesus because we start taking on the characteristics of Jesus. So how does that translate into the last part that Jesus said, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Let me say this, Jesus is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. That's his job. That's his purpose. That is his function. And so at salvation or at Passover, you get the spirit in you. But at Pentecost, you get in the spirit. You see, it's okay to take a drink of water. That water is in you. But when you get baptized, you get immersed, you get in the water. And so spirit baptism means that not only is the spirit in me, that's that's great and that's wonderful, but I also get in the Spirit. Now, how exactly does this happen? There are many statements in the Scriptures that talk to us about this status in 
Christ. And I want to get there in just a moment. But there are, uh, to understand this, the revelation of three veils. Everybody heard that um, on, on uh, Passover, when Jesus was crucified, that there was a huge veil in the temple that separated the inner court from the most holy place. Only the priest could pass one time a year, Day of Atonement, to get into that most holy place. Do you know what separated the inner court from that most holy place? It was a huge curtain, they call it a veil. It was so thick and it was so uh, intricately woven that they said it would take two teams of oxen on either side pulling in opposite directions to ever split that veil. It was not something easily to be separated. But when Jesus was crucified, the scriptures record that the veil in the temple was split from top to bottom. Now, someone could have easily gone in with a knife or some kind of sharp instrument, and they could have cut it from the bottom, and they could have started pulling it. And so having it split from the bottom to the top, that's kind of understandable. But to go from the top to the bottom, a place where nobody was allowed to enter anyway, but when Jesus was crucified, when he went to the cross and he said, it is finished, that veil in the temple was split from top to bottom, which signified that you and I now have access to the most holy place. Come on, we have access to the Father. By the precious blood of Jesus, that veil was torn so that you and I can go boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy and help from God in our time of need. But there's another veil in scripture. Hebrews tells it like this. I didn't give him this in in the media, but Hebrews 10 and 19 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us. Somebody say for us. See, we get wrapped up in all that we can do in this world, all that we can do for our life, all that we can do for our family, all that we can do to make a nice life for ourselves. But it says here that he consecrated this for us through the veil that is his flesh. Follow me. The first veil in the temple was a curtain made of fabric. The second veil... Hebrews tells us, was his flesh. And when they pierced his side, it showed that blood and water flowed. Not one bone was broken on Jesus' body. He was on the cross, and they pierced his flesh. And the piercing of his flesh gave you and I the ability to be in Christ. Now we can get into the holy place, and we can get in Christ. In Christ, we are a new creation. There is therefore now no Condemnation to those who are in Christ. That means that if you're outside of Christ, there is condemnation. There is judgment already. You don't have to judge a wayward world. They're already living under a death sentence of judgment if they're not in Christ. But in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. In him I live. In him I move. And in him, anybody know it? I have my being. I have everything I need in Christ. But now we get to the run-up to Pentecost. There's a third veil in this world. It is the separation between life and the afterlife. I won't say death because the, the, the dying of the body is simply a change in residence. It is a change in address. It is entering into another dimension. It is the afterlife. Life, the, the veil of the heavenlies. And in Acts 1-9 at the ascension, we see that Jesus, 
went up into the heavens and he pierced that third and final veil, which is the veil between life and the afterlife or the heavenlies. The place, the heavenlies are the place where God dwells, where God's abode is. And so at Pentecost, we get a glimpse of the heavens being opened and some miraculous act that took place can continue time and again for all generations. Acts 1 and 8 says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord and in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were what were they doing they were resting they were sitting there appeared to them cloven tongues or divided tongues in other words it was it was individual it was it was enough for everyone as of fire was it fire no it was as of fire was it a mighty rushing wind no it was as of a rushing mighty wind it's a simile they're they're giving it the best comparison that they can possibly make it but it looked like fire it felt like fire it seemed like fire and one sat upon each and every one of them So one of these cloven or divided tongues of fire sat upon each of the 120. The place of sitting is a place of resting or a place of authority. And so the the spirit being given at Pentecost was authorizing you and I to be something. Not just to do something, but to be something. I'll share that in a minute. And it says in verse 4, and they were, somebody say that next word with me. All filled. How many of them were filled? All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them the ability or the Spirit gave them utterance. This is the birthday of the New Testament church. This is the very first initiation of the church coming of age where God has signified that Jesus made it back safely to the Father, that he's seated at the right hand, and he is making intercession for us. Now, originally, the Feast of Pentecost, it was a festival, it was a feast, and it was signifying the wheat harvest. The Feast of Pentecost uh, was very special to the Jewish people because they would take two loaves of bread and they would offer them as a wave offering to the Lord. Now in worship, when we lift our hands to the Lord, that's a wave offering. We're giving a wave offering to the Lord. But they would take two loaves of bread made with leaven. Now leaven usually in scripture represents what? Any Bible scholars out there, what's leaven represent? Sin, that's right. Leaven represents sin. So at, at uh, Passover, when Jesus was um, taking the Last Supper with his, his disciples, they would have taken unleavened bread because the sin was left out, spiritually speaking. But at Pentecost, they would make two loaves of bread with finely beaten wheat. 
they would take off all of the rough spots of the wheat and they would make two loaves of bread. And for thousands of years, the Jewish people would celebrate by making it a wave offering unto the Lord. Over time, and by the time that this happened in, in Acts chapter 2, the Jewish people started to lose the significance of the wheat harvest. They started to lose the purpose of what this was all about. Until Jesus came and he said, this is how you pray to the Father. Give us this day our daily bread. And so this is a harvest signifying that we are reliant, dependent upon God for our very sustenance. That if God doesn't provide, then we don't eat. And so over time, the, the, the loaves just became something that they would wave and, and no big deal. And they kind of substituted this harvest with the, um, the idea of the giving of the law. So they started saying, you know what? Yeah, God is our su- supply, but we're going to start thinking about Pentecost in, in Mount Sinai terms, the giving of the law. These loaves are very important because what they represent at Pentecost is not only that God provides for our sustenance, but there is one loaf that represents the Jewish people, and there is another loaf that represents the Gentiles. Both of them, in and of themselves, have leaven. Both of them have sin in their lives. But at Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit, we find that there is something dynamic that happens where God says, whether you're Jew or whether you're Gentile, this message is to your sons and to your daughters and to whosoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. They took the wheat and they beat it finally and they got it so pure. And the purity of the wheat represents Jesus as the sacrifice. And they made this leaven loaf to say, whether you're Jew or whether you're Gentile, you come in the same fashion, you come in the same manner, you too must bow your knee to the cross. And you too have the opportunity to be accepted and initiated into the family of God. Now, it's interesting to me that what started out this day, 2,000 years ago, as a memorial to the law, the Spirit came in and disrupted their plans. Now, you and I have been under some very strict burden and onerous Uh, commands from our government over the last several weeks. And I know that they did it with well intention. Through coronavirus uh, lockdown and quarantines and stay-at-home orders, these strict uh, uh, fear-induced things, I don't know if I need to do this or do that. Should I wear a mask? Should I not wear a mask? Can I touch surfaces? Can I not touch surfaces? And, And these kinds of things have been spinning all around us. And isn't it interesting that in the midst of all of these onerous rules that are upon us, we now have the opportunity to assemble on Pentecost Sunday to say the Spirit of the Lord is with us. The Spirit of the Lord is breaking in with new life. Today is the harvest of celebration. It says that they were in one accord. Now this this alone is a message to preach because all through the Gospels you read them, you find that there were jockeying and infighting and envy within the very close-knit circle, the disciples of Jesus. Two of them even sending their mommy to Jesus to say, hey, can my boys sit on your right and left? (laughs) Remember that? When you come into your kingdom, will you give my boys a premium spot? Peter telling all of them, no, I've got the relationship with Jesus. And John saying, I'm the beloved one. And so there is this jockeying and this infighting even amongst the disciples of Jesus. But at this day, they were all in one accord and they were all in one place. Now, you and I can be in one accord online, 
But today we're in one accord in the same place. Amen. Now, I really appreciate that my favorite restaurants offered takeout orders during coronavirus. I did my duty to make sure I frequented and kept those restaurants in business. Anybody else out there? Looking at some of you, you did too. I know. All right, I know. But there's just something different about taking the order out versus eating the meal in. If you're like me, you do your best to check the order before you leave, but when you get home, always something a little bit's missing. It's just not quite right. Well, that's kind of like how online church is. Online church is, is not a substitute for you coming to gather amongst the, the people of God. It is a supplement. It is given as an opportunity for the takeout order every now and then when you can't make it to the place for real. But I want to tell you, there is something dynamic about gathering in the house of God with the people of God worshiping around the throne of God. It's what we called to do. It's what we need to do. It's what God wants for us. They were all in one place. Now, when I look at this first four verses, those are dynamic and those are awesome. And, and we so often get, get caught up in, in the specific vocal gift that took place at Pentecost, which I don't discount at all. Paul the Apostle, I like how Paul said it. He said, I speak in tongues more than you all, but I would rather that there be a few words spoken in public that is intelligible than for us to all be speaking in other tongues. There's a time and there's a place. And speaking in tongues is still even for this day. Languages, which we don't know, praise language, prayer language, languages of, of this world that people can be converted with. That is miraculous. It is a sign from God. But we get so often focused on that as the gift or the promise, when the promise is not speaking in tongues, the promise is the Holy Spirit. And there are so many more gifts that were given with the Holy Spirit in doing us than just simply speaking with other tongues. If you look at verses 5 through 13, I'm not going to put them on the screen, but read them when you get home. I, want, I just want you to see a couple of the, the names of, of those gathered on this day, because I think it speaks very real to what's happening right now in our nation. How many of those God can set something up in time and order to get our attention that we would have never thought of before. It says that gathered that day were the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites of Mesopotamia, those of Judea and Cappadocia, uh, Pontus and Asia, from Figria and from Egypt, from Libya and Cyrene, Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In other words, there were people of all different denominations. There were people from all different people groups. There were people all around from all the regions that came that spoke different languages and were from different places. Now in our day and in our time, in America over the last several days, we have witnessed the lowest of humanity that it has to offer. The depravity of mankind and it's, it's represented in a word that is such an ugly word. It's racism. We have seen racism on full display, and it's not that it ever completely goes away, but it's that every now and then it just you know, maybe subdues and we forget about it. But I think that at Pentecost, what we find is that it is the disillusion of separation. Pentecost speaks so valiantly and so vibrantly to us today of what is happening in the people heart of our nation. And it is that we are a separated, a segregated people. 
It's been said that the most segregated hour in all of America is Sunday morning church hour. The whites have a church, the blacks have a church, the Latinos have a church, the Korean Baptists have a church. Everybody goes to their own silo. Everybody goes to their own preference. There's nothing wrong with having something for everybody, but I want to tell you that on the day of Pentecost, everybody had a similar experience and racism was dissolved. Because in Christ, there is neither male nor female, Jew or Greek. There is neither slave or free, but we are all one in Jesus. Now, when someone tells you that they're colorblind, they're not being honest with you. Because when I look at a person of a different color than me, I can tell and I can see that we are different. But that doesn't need to spawn into a ugly and dirty term like racism. Because... Speaking from medical terms, speaking uh, from just uh, physiological terms, did you know that the human body is 99.99% the same? Meaning that you can take a white person's kidneys and put them in a black person's body and those kidneys, if the match is right, will work. You can take a black person's heart as a transplant into a Latino person's body, and because they're 99.99% the same, it will function. And that 0.1 of 1% is what gives us the difference in pigmentation of our skin. It's what gives us the difference in the color of our eyes or the color of our hair or how that we maybe um, uh, develop in muscular or in form. 99.9% the same, yet we see people through the lens of differences. It's racism. Can I tell you what the cure for racism is? It's that there is really only one race. It is the one human race. There's not multiple races. There's one human race. You see, this all started back in the Garden of Eden. It all started back with Adam and Eve. If they are the original parents, and they are our original parents, every nation, kindred, and tribe came from them. Now, violence didn't start in the 1950s or in the 1960s in racial wars in America. I know this seems a little bit off topic, but this needs to be discussed from the church houses to the White House to the State House to Congress. Because we are facing a national tragedy right now. And violence didn't start then. Violence actually began back, if you look, with the first descendants of Adam and Eve. Violence began with Cain and with Abel. That's where we get it. But if you go just a couple chapters later into Genesis, you'll find that after the flood, racism began. Noah got off the ark and he went into different corners and his kids went into different places. And because of the geographical differences, they started having some overtones in their skin that were different. And racism began right there after the flood. Genesis 9 and 10, you can read it. But when you get to Genesis 11, there was something else that further uh, uh, punctuated this problem. And that was, there was a tower. You probably heard of it, the Tower of Babel. And it is said that they conceived in their hearts that they were going to build a tower to heaven. And God had to come down and confuse their language because he said, because they are all speaking the same 
thing. Because they're speaking the same language, nothing is impossible for them. In other words, God's saying, they're all on the same page. They're in one accord. They're in the same place. Kind of sounds like the day of Pentecost, doesn't it? They cannot have anything that withholds from them when they are in that same place. And so he confused their language, and racism began to rear its ugly head even back in Genesis. And so isn't it appropriate then that on the day of Pentecost... Because they couldn't speak the same language, what God did was miraculously give the opportunity for them to hear the glory of God, to hear the message of the gospel in their own language. Languages that the the speakers had never even learned. And God graced them by bridging the gap of language barriers. So I want to tell you that what I see here at Pentecost is a great racial reconciliation. That we are one human race. That we all have the same God as our Father if we are in Christ. And at Pentecost is a time where the church of Jesus should stand up and say, whether you are red, yellow, black, or white, all are precious in his sight. And I am going to stand with my brothers and sisters of color. I am going to stand with people of different nationalities. Because you know what? They didn't ask to be born the color that they were born. Just like I didn't ask to be born white, but I am. But that's just one-tenth of one percent of what makes up me as a human. And so what we share in common is way more than what we have as differences. So speaking in tongues was a miraculous sign that was demonstrated at Pentecost, but it's not the primary or the exclusive evidence It is simply one of the many things. And it sounded like a mighty rushing wind. You know, the high priest one time a year would go into the Holy of Holies and make atonement. And they would put bells on his garment. And as long as the people could hear the bells ringing that the the high priest was still working, then they knew that he was still alive in there. They couldn't see him through the veils. They couldn't see him, but they could hear the bells and they knew and they were watching and they were waiting where their sins going to be atoned for. And though they couldn't see him, but they could hear him, it was proof positive that he was still alive. Can I tell you why that there was a mighty rushing wind, a sound from heaven? Because it was proof positive that though they couldn't see Jesus, their Messiah, he had already ripped that third veil in the heavenlies. He had made it back safely to the Father and he was still alive. And I'm going to tell you today, Jesus is still alive. And we heard a sound as of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Cloven tongues of fire sat upon each and every one of them. That's the power of Pentecost. But I want to close with the purpose of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 and verse 37 says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, Peter's preaching here, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, look at this, men and brethren, what shall we do? You see, when the church of Jesus gets on the same page, when the church of Jesus starts acting and looking like the bride of Christ, then people are going to start wondering what's different about this group. What's different about these people? And these questions will arise, what shall we do? we do. Then Peter stood up and said to them, you ready? Here's Peter's message. Repent 
Here's what Peter's saying. You've been thinking the wrong way. You need to repent, which means you change the way you think. Repent is I'm going this direction, but I turn 180 and I go in the opposite direction. It is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you too shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance is the result of recognizing that I can't fix my situation on my own. That it takes God to come and destroy a virus, that it takes God to come and make right what has gone wrong, that it takes God to bring prosperity back to a land, that it takes God to bring reconciliation back to families, that it takes God to bring that lowly sinner home, the prodigal to a place of restitution with the parent. And this is the purpose of Pentecost, that we might be witnesses. Where? To Jerusalem. That would be like Lebanon because we're right here. They were right in Jerusalem. It was their hometown. You're to be a witness in Jerusalem. Where else? Judea. That would be like Mason or the county of Warren or Samaria, which would be like the state of Ohio or the uttermost parts of the earth. Notice he didn't say, go out and do witnessing. (laughs) If I'm being honest, I hate doing witnessing. I don't. I don't like doing witnessing. I've been through all of the classes on witnessing. I've taken seminary level classes on witnessing, and I hate doing witnessing. Why? Because it's, it's something that I feel like is a burden that I have to do. But now being a witness, that's different. Because whether I'm in the grocery store at Kroger on the afternoon on Sunday, or I'm at my, at my home mowing the grass, when I am being what God has called me to be, then witness just comes out. It's kind of like when you squeeze a lemon, you don't expect to get apple juice. You squeeze a lemon, you get lemon juice. You squeeze a Christian, you get a witness juice that comes out. Glory, hallelujah, God has been good to me. I just can't help but to testify of all he's done for me. That is the purpose of Pentecost. Not so that you feel guilty that you have to do something, but that you are privileged that you get to be a witness of Jesus. So I'm gonna tell you today, stop trying to do witnessing and begin being a witness for Jesus. I'm gonna ask you to stand all around this place. And here's what we're gonna say. Lord, pour your spirit out like you did on that first Pentecostal day. Pour your spirit out on us. Give of us the fresh manna of heaven, this great harvest of Pentecost. Let it be ours today. As we have regathered in this place to worship and praise you, God, cause us, your people, to be witnesses. They're going to sing, and Elder Ron's going to come and close.